0: Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to lliw.net to register.
1: Okay, ready? Are we going to clap with it? Let me hear it.
2: Let Right-a-tap-tap. God will it. Make- the a big
0: boat flip. Who's that story is that about? Noah. Noah, good girl, high five.
1: I grew up in a small country town in the church where everybody was expected to have a, have a position. And probably when I was in the junior division, they asked me in that church to be a Sabbath school teacher in Craterall. So I got my start there. Little did I know that 50-some years later, I'd still be doing it. (laughs) I remember my junior Sabbath school teacher. We'd all sit sit in a circle around her and she'd teach us a Sabbath school lesson. And one thing I remember is that she gave me a little bookmark. I don't know if it was Christmas or what it was, but it was the shape of a cross she had crocheted. I still have that. I moved here as a student, nursing student, in 1964. The lady in charge was Lorraine Felker. And one time, after church, after Sabbath school, she caught me and said, Jeannie, will you work in Sabbath school? I guess I said yes. Pretty much the whole time it was birth to 15 months. So they were babies. None of them remember being in my Sabbath school. It's not hard because the parents remember and they're the ones that you get to know and the kids. And I enjoy seeing them up in front. They're running up there for the children's story or or playing in the handbells or, you know, anything, getting baptized, that's rewarding to see them. And me not having children, it was a chance for me to use my mothering instincts for an hour on Sabbath. Then I could give them
2: back. When I first came to children's ministry, Jeannie embraced me with a big hug. And she said, welcome to this ministry. And I knew immediately that we had a connection. Jeannie is awesome. (laughs) Every time I see her, I get a joy in coming to Sabbath school because I know she's very uh, productive. Everything is in order. She knows each parent and she makes us talk about each other before we start Sabbath school so that we can know each other as a family.
0: She's there early. It, 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 she's there late in the Sabbath school oh. class. Um, she greets you with a smile, oh, no. knows all the kids by name almost almost before they step foot into the, into the class.
2: I know that she went to a lot of piano recitals. I know that she went to a lot of birthday parties. I know that she went to different events that meant something to families. And that was one of the steps of developing that deeper relationship and really understanding the different families that were in her Sabbath school class.
1: I, I relied on prayer a lot because if I couldn't find a leader, I'd just pray about it and, and somehow, almost always it worked out. It was waiting till the last minute on Friday night. You didn't know for sure if you were gonna have your program together on Sabbath, but somehow it
2: worked out. Teaching for Jeannie was so much more than just filling a slot. It was getting a family connected to our community where they felt like they were part of our church and and our bigger church and not just a Sabbath school class. I would like to follow in her footsteps. (laughs) Maybe not that long, but it's really a good 40 years is a long time. I think she was my Sabbath school teacher when i was in cradle roll
1: well i enjoyed it i i i you know it wasn't like i was giving up anything i was the one gaining the blessing it was kind of a way of life for me on sabbath
0: i have to say thank you to jean what a testament to faithfulness. Kevin was five. Well, he would have told you he was almost six. And Ryan was three, though he would have told you he was almost four. They were sitting at the table, eagerly waiting for the first pancake off the griddle. Mom had told them she would make their favorite breakfast today, and they were both eager to have the first pancake, eager enough that they were fighting about it. It's mine. No, it's mine. No, it's mine. Back and forth they went. Mom thought, this is a perfect time for a lesson. And so she stepped away from the griddle and looked at her boys and said to them, Now, boys, if it happened that Jesus could be here today, here's what he would say. He would turn to his brother and he would say, you can have the first pancake. At which point, Kevin turned to Ryan and said, you be Jesus. Laughter Maybe you ran across the story, story of a woman in a hurry that day behind the wheel of her car and frustrated that the driver in front of her, this this man in front of her, was going so slow. Come on, come on, she was saying, get moving. She was tailgating, trying to get him to go faster. Come on, this is not a Sunday afternoon at the park. Well, he didn't like the idea that somebody was tailgating And so when they came up to the intersection, he could see that the light had just turned yellow. He had ample time to make it through. But since it had turned yellow, he slammed on his brakes and stopped. She stopped, almost hitting him. And now she was enraged. Now she was screaming and yelling in the car, waving her hands, telling him, I think you're number one in my heart, (laughs) something like that. (laughs) And just going after him with vigor. When somebody tapped on her window, Startled, she looked up and it was a police officer. Told her to roll the window down. She did. She, he said, Ma'am, would you please pull over? So now she pulled over to the side of the road. He came up and said, License, insurance, papers. And he took them back to his car and he stayed there an interminable amount of time. <laughs> T- took all the time he needed. And finally, with her frustration again rising, He came back to her window, and he took a long look at her, and then handed her back her paperwork. said, man, on the back of this car you're driving, there's a fish decal. There's a bumper sticker that invites people to vacation Bible school. There's another bumper sticker that says, follow me to church. I was sure this car was stolen. (laughs) (laughs) So a question. What does faithfulness look like? We're focused on that word, this camp meeting series, faithful. So what does it look like if we live a faithful life? Our first week, we took note of the fact that covenant faithfulness begins in the heart of God. We took note of the fact that faithfulness has to do with what God did, with what God is doing, and with what God will yet do. That any response of faithfulness on our part is just that. It is response to God's faithfulness. And then last week, we noticed that it will take some courage to step up and live a faithful life, some courage because we will be swimming against the current, working against the grain because the culture around us is not living in faithful ways. And so we have a decision to make. But we make that decision, and now our question this week is, what does it look like? to live a faithful life. What does that look like? How might I recognize it? Right out of the starting gate, we might say, well, that should be an easy question to answer. We just take Scripture, and we start perusing its pages, looking at the examples of faithfulness herein contained. We look at Abraham, stooped with age, putting one faithful foot in front of the other as he makes his way slowly up Mount Moriah with Isaac in tow. We don't understand that kind of faithfulness, but that's what it is. We gaze on the scene as the three Hebrews are bound hand and foot, prepared as firewood for the fire. We listen to the words that they speak. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. But then we lean in and hear them say, but if he does not. Won't change what we do. And we know we have to write the word faithful beneath that scene. Or we descend into the dungeon where Joseph is held as a prisoner. Held not because he's been unfaithful, but because he's been faithful. And then while we're in prison, we might listen carefully because some centuries down the road, there might come echoing back the sound of him singing at midnight as Paul and Silas sing in a Philippian prison. Faithful. We might even walk barefoot with reverence onto the holiest of scenes and see that abandoned rabbi clinging for his life to the damp earth of the garden and choking out the words, nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And over every scene, under every picture, we would write the word faithful. But I'm watching you as you write and I lean in close and I can hear you whisper under your breath. Faithful, all right, but nothing like my life. So maybe we'll leave the stories of the greats of the faith and move into Our contemporary context, maybe we'll look at the scene that has within it Lance Corporal Jeffrey Lee Nashton of the United States Marine Corps, October 1983, assignment Beirut, Lebanon. He is in the building that day when that bomb detonates, when it explodes in every direction, as the concrete crumbles, as the screams pierce the air. As the dead bodies are dragged out, there's Nashton. We see him again just a few brief days later, this time lying in the bed of an intensive care unit in a hospital in Frankfurt, Germany. Those who saw him there said he looked like a pincushion, seeing that needles and lines and tubes were inserted in every place all over his body. He was still trying to emerge from that fog, trying to get his bearings, trying to understand all that had happened. And then somebody told him, there's an officer in the room, an officer named General P.X. Kelly. General P.X. Kelly, the 28th Commandant of the United States Marine Corps. When Lance Corporal Nashton heard that name, P.X. Kelly, somehow that got through, and he signaled for something to write with in a piece of paper. They provided it, and on that paper, he penned just two words, Semper Fi. the abbreviated version of Semper Fidelis, the Marine Corps motto, always, forever, faithful. And as we view that scene, we agree the word faithful must be there inscribed. But I hear you whisper, it's faithful, all right, but nothing like my life And I understand that. It's not like my life either. We, you and me, we are mere ordinary mortals. We are marked not by the magnificent, but by the mundane. Not by the flames that consume the martyrs, but by the dying embers that merely singe and annoy. Common life. So when we ask the question, what does faithfulness look like? It's wonderful to remember those great scenes of Scripture, the examples that are abounding in our world today. But we have to ask, where are we? What does everyday, ordinary faithfulness look like? Our text today is a very short text, one verse long. Ten words in the TNIV in the English, nine words in the Greek, a very short text. It's found in Romans 12. But before we come to the reading of the text, I want to give you a bit of context for the text. Paul has been in Romans in the first 11 chapters, pinning Phrase after paragraph after chapter about the faithfulness of God. The grand faithfulness of our glorious God. It is so grand that he ends up saying things like oh the depths of the knowledge and the riches and the wisdom of God far beyond our understanding. He's writing about the faithfulness of God. He recognizes the profound sorrow of this mortal world. But he says, nevertheless, even recognizing all of that, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither principalities nor powers, neither the past nor the future, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what he's been writing about. For 11 chapters, the faithfulness of God. And now in chapter 12, he turns his eyes on us. He turns his mind to us. He wants to answer our question, what does it look like, our faithfulness to God? He heard our whispers. And so he writes about faithfulness. Now, those verses that Paul writes, there in Romans chapter 12, read to us by David and Jenny Moore as our scripture reading today, I have concluded that these verses are Paul as a mother. The mother is sorrow stricken, her son is leaving for college. His bags are packed. He's ready to go. He's standing there outside her door already. Now she hates to see him go. And so as the last act, she's mom. She says to him things like what Paul says here. Hate what is evil, son. Cling to what is good. Be sure and include those who get left out. Don't take revenge. Leave room for God to work. Don't don't do evil things, but overcome the evil things that are done to you with good. Mom is trying in a few last desperate phrases and words and sentences to underline the reality of how he can live in a way that is consistent with how he has been raised. And that's Paul. Paul says, I've spent 11 chapters raising you in Christ But now I'm going to turn you out into the world, so please, just a few quick things before you go. And then phrase after phrase, word after word, sentence after sentence, he talks about living faithful lives. But there is one verse, one verse more than any other, I think, that captures the answer to that question, what does faithfulness look like? In a common ordinary life, Romans chapter 12 and verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Just three statements Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. The eminent English New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, underlining how this passage speaks to all of us common, ordinary folk, has this to say about it. Paul's readers' spirits must be constantly aglow, like the fire that burns in an old-fashioned stove to keep the house warm and to be ready for cooking and similar tasks. And they must regard themselves as servants of the Lord, that is, of Jesus himself. Their life, I want you to catch this part, their life should be a steady stream of rejoicing in hope, remaining patient under suffering, and giving themselves to prayer. Their life should be a steady stream. The fire always burning. Always ready. How? Rejoicing in hope. Patient in trials, persevering in prayer. So we start with that first phrase phrase, rejoicing in hope. You understand how much hope can lead to rejoicing. After all, if we have hope, we have a holy optimism about the future. There is something in the future that is good that is better than what we currently have. I think it is for that reason that for many of us, it's difficult to relate to hope. How do you encourage people to hope when we already have everything we need? When we're already saturated, our needs are satisfied and met. For what then do we hope? God reminds me of... The one I believe was a Southern California preacher, not me, (laughs) but a Southern California preacher who, in trying to reach his people, admitted, he said, I have a very hard time reaching them. I don't know how to reach them. He said, here in Southern California, the summers are so hot that hell doesn't scare them, and the winters are so beautiful that heaven doesn't inspire them. So how do I reach them, he asked. His question might as well have been, how do I get them to hope? However, just let tribulation elbow its way into your life and it changes everything. Just allow your job to be threatened, your health to be uncertain, your life to be unclear, your loved one to be terminal, and suddenly you understand this virtue called hope you understand how hope can keep you alive and you understand how a vital vibrant living hope can lead to joy hope rejoice with hope says paul psychologist named dr julius sigal Wrote about 25,000 of the POWs in World War II and Southeast Asia. Wrote about the trials, the traumas through which they passed. Deeply dark and difficult times. But he noted that there was a difference between certain prisoners with other prisoners. I want you to listen to the words of Seagal as he writes, Forced to exist under inhumane conditions, many of them died. Others, however, survived and eventually returned home. There was no reason to believe there was a difference in the stamina of these two groups of soldiers. The survivors, however, were different in one major respect. They confidently expected to be released one day. We call that hope. One author says this, they talked about the kinds of homes they would have, the jobs they would choose, and even described the kind of person they would marry. They drew pictures on the walls to illustrate their dreams. Some even found ways to study subjects related to the kind of career they wanted to pursue. Two kinds of prisoners, said Seagull. Some who gave up, were never getting out of this place. And others who drew pictures on the wall. You see this? This is the floor plan of my house. Soon as I get back home, this is how it's going to look. See, right here's the entryway. It opens into a big family room area. We're going to have a lot of friends over. Watch the games. There, there's my wife up there. Isn't she beautiful? What's her name? I don't know. I have met her yet, but there she is. She's beautiful. She's happy to see me home. And right over here, this is the kitchen. Can, can you smell the aroma, the baking bread? Oh. Can you smell the casserole? Look, look right there. See, see right there the, the mounds of mashed potatoes, the butter running down and rivers melting. Look at that. And you smell that other aroma? That's the pie, the apple pie. And right over on this side, this is where the really big refrigerator with the huge freezer is, full of ice cream for the pie. (laughs) And the prisoners lean forward and their eyes grow large. They lick their lips, their mouths water. Your stomach's grow- Who am I kidding? My stomach is growling right now. <laughs> in anticipation. In hope. And tragically, off to the side, another group, isolated, lonely, in despair, without hope. I don't know the circumstances you face today. I know many of us have more than we'll ever need. But there are a few here today who feel like POWs in some kind of prison camp. Paul says to you, draw on the wall. Imagine what God has in store Because this old broken world will never have the last word. God will always have the last word. Cling to that hope because that's what the faithful friends of Jesus do. Rejoice in hope, he says. But Paul is no starry-eyed idealist. He does not believe that rejoicing in hope is Pollyannish that it removes us from the awareness of pain and suffering. He knows better than that in his own life. And so he adds a second directive. Rejoice in hope, he says, but then he says, be patient in tribulation, in affliction, in suffering. Now, if you want to get a sense of what he means by that, I want you to consider from one scholarly source the sense of that Greek word, phlipsis, which gets translated variously by different versions, tribulation, suffering, affliction. Here is the sense of the word. Listen to this. An oppressive state of physical, mental, social, or economic adversity. I think that pretty well covers the waterfront. Physical. I'm hurting, I'm in chronic pain. My back, my knees, I'm facing cancer. They're not able to manage the pain. We're in physical, oppressive physical adversity. Mental. I can't sleep at night. The situation at work is beyond belief. The stress, the tension is so high, I lie awake, tossing and turning. I can't get it off of my mind. My mind races oppressive mental adversity. Social. I've gone through a breakup. He hates me now. She doesn't want anything to do with me. The group at work that I was part of has pushed me out. I'm here. I'm new on campus. I don't have friends. Social adversity. Economic. I don't know. We, we make a good living, but a couple of things that we invested in went wrong and now suddenly we're in deep trouble. We have no margins. I don't know how we're going to make it. That's the sense of the word. Adversity, affliction, trouble. And what does Paul say to do? He says, Be patient in affliction. Huh. Be patient in affliction. I don't know about you, but when I'm in affliction, the last thing I think of is patience. I want to get through that. I want to get it over with. Be done with it. A little while ago, I was invited to guest speak at a special event for a friend. I was honored to do so. I arrived at the place... Flew there, arrived at the hotel, and was going through whatever it was that was going around at the time. You know, the drill, the upper respiratory, the throat on fire, body aches, all those kinds of different things. Got to my room, took something, went to bed, fell asleep, but didn't stay asleep. One, one-thirty, two, three, three-thirty, kept tossing and turning, rolling around, feeling absolutely horrible. And then about three-thirty, I knew it was kind of, raced to the bathroom and <clears throat> refunded everything. <laughs> and then that began. And over the next several hours, again and again with that, and I'm thinking, I've got about four hours, about three hours, about two and a half. How am I going to stand up and speak? It's one thing if this is going on. I can deal with that. But this, as I thought back on that this week, as I read and studied this passage, it came to me. I realized that throughout that miserable night, never once did I say, patience, Randy. Patience. Never said it. Now, by the grace of God and the goodness of a physician, two physicians from that place, Provided some help. They were Loma Linda grads. I was proud of them that day. (laughs) So that I was able to stand up and do what I had gone there to do. But it leaves me reflective. What do you mean, Paul? Patient in affliction. Because the truth is, that's when most of us get impatient. Upset. Angry, controlling, even manipulative, to deal with this and to get it over with. I don't mean Paul is over, is against getting it over with, but he does call us to a certain quietness of spirit that recognizes we have a shepherd that walks with us through the dark valley. We have a leader that says, I will not allow the waters to overwhelm you. We have a God who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So the question that comes home to us is, in the midst of affliction, can we faithfully, patiently trust I don't know if I can do that. In fact, I'll be honest with you. By the time I get to this point in the text, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, I have one question for Paul, just one. One word long, and that's how? How? How do you expect me to do that? If that's what faithfulness means, then I need some help in knowing how to live that way. And Paul says, glad you asked. Let me add a third phrase. Persevere in prayer. Be faithful in prayer. Be devoted to prayer. Do you want to know how to do it? Don't stop talking to God. Just continue talking to God. The truth is, when our prayers aren't answered, when life doesn't go the way we had hoped it would, when we had hoped for a different outcome than the one that we now are facing, when those kinds of things happen, one of our clear temptations is to stop praying, to quit praying. That's all superstition. It doesn't work. Forget about it. To that, Paul says, persevere in prayer. Don't stop talking to God read a woman this last week named Bonnie McFarlane, a writer. She tells about having some kind of thing with her husband. Those of you who are married know what I mean. It became a thing, and they got upset, and fireworks, I don't even know what it was about. She decided she was so upset, she just was going to give him the silent treatment. So she just stopped talking to him, not for an hour, not for an afternoon, not for a date, for an entire week. She said, I gave him silent treatment for a week, at the end of which he said to me, had the audacity to say to me, wow, babe, we really are getting along great these days. (laughs) Well, I don't know. Maybe that helps in your marriage, but that's not a good approach, and it certainly is not a good approach with God. In fact, the testimony of this book, of person after prophet, after believer, after disciple, is that those who truly walked with God never stopped talking. Now, don't misunderstand. It wasn't always a gentle, quiet, kind conversation. Just read the Psalms. The psalms are the prayers of the psalmist, and the psalms give us an insight into every emotional experience imaginable. But through it all, the psalmist kept talking to God. They persevered in prayer. When they didn't understand what God was doing, they told him so. God, are you going to sit up there forever and never do something to change what's happening in my life? Where are you? When they were depressed, or frightened, they talked to God, please, through the valley of the shadow of death. You're with me, aren't you? Amen. When they were happy and filled with joy, they praised God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. When they had uncertainties, they processed those with God. They never stopped talking. And thus lived faithfully before God. So if your question is the same as mine, God, how do I live a life of ordinary faithfulness? How do I do it? Paul says, don't stop talking. Just keep talking. Whatever it is that's going on, just air it out in honesty before God. And you will be living a faithful life life. So our question is, what does faithfulness look like? Does it look like Abraham, Joseph, the three Hebrew worthies, Paul, Silas, is that what it looks like? The answer is yes, it does. Does it look like Lance Corporal Jeffrey Lee Nashton? Yes, that's a kind of faithfulness. But maybe there's something closer to you, closer to me. Maybe there's an everyday, ordinary faithfulness to which God calls us. A faithfulness in the simple and humble attitudes of the heart that then begin to show themselves in the life. That's what Paul calls us to. That is the faithfulness of which Paul writes. Very simple. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be faithful in prayer. And you will show the world what faithfulness looks like. God of grace our hearts overflow with gratitude to you for your faithfulness. And Lord, our hearts reach for strength to ourselves live faithfully. Give us the power, the presence, and the blessing of your Holy Spirit to do just that. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.